for some. for some context about the size of India. The state of Orisha that was mentioned right there has a population of Christians that is about 1.2 million. That's roughly a quarter of the size of Kentucky, population-wise. That makes up 2.7% of that state. That singular state is 40, has 42 million people. I think mean, only California in the United States has a number that would relate to that. And you've never even heard of Orisha. India has a population of 1.3 billion. China has a population, the largest country has a population of 1.4 billion. And it's expected probably within the next 20 years, if not sooner, that India will be the largest country in the world. About 40% of the world's entire population lives in China, India, and Indonesia. And so when we think about a crowded world, we cannot relate to a crowded world uh, at all. To throw another thing on there as well, actually Christianity in Korea was very common in the 18 and early 1900s, but it really lost its way when the Japanese invaded uh, Korea and took over in the early 1900s. There's always fighting between Japan and China over Korea. And then North and South Korea split or at least fought a civil war that the U.S. was involved in. Some of you may know people who fought in Korea and it's been quite restricted in the North, actually quite restricted in the South up until about the last 20 years um, even as well. So just wanted to throw a couple of bits of information out there to you. Uh, it's fascinating to me the size of places like this. Tonight we're talking about, continuing to talk about, the miracles of Jesus. And tonight we are going to be discussing, if I can hit the right button, we are going to be discussing, all right, what I'll call the first catch of fish, what's sometimes referred to as the drought of fish, the miraculous catch of fish. They don't all have as good a titles as some of the other, but we're over two on good titles because lastly, it was the wedding at Cana, the marriage of Cana, at Cana, water to wine, and any and all of these kinds of topics there as well. But we're going to go to Luke chapter 5 this evening, and that's where we're going to target ourselves from. But like we did last week, and probably how we'll do this as we go forward, we'll introduce it a little bit, chat about it a little bit, we'll read from it a little bit, ask a few questions, and then we'll try and figure out something that we can take home with us as we go. This is in Luke chapter 5. And in this story, in this reading here in Luke, we see that Jesus had called four disciples to him. We see that sort of what we had just read there just a moment ago, the scripture reading uh, there uh, prior to it. But again, we are in the early stages of Jesus's ministry right here. Early, at least three of the four, Peter, Andrew, probably John, followed Jesus. And the quote from John 1, 35 through 42 says they had abode with him or lived with him or stayed with him, whatever way you want to use that word, that day. Now, the four are called, and this time they left all and followed Jesus. So it seems to imply here that Jesus had interacted with them before and then had uh, 
told them, or had basically told them to leave it all and follow him. You can kind of see that, which makes sense that, you, you know, it's hard to convert somebody the very first second that you see them, but still, nonetheless, a, uh, a decision by them that would have uh, long-lasting consequences for the possible. Matthew and Mark are likely referring to this same event, but they don't tell about the miracle. You can go to Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1, and they're sort of talking around the same story, but uh, not always is it included in the same place. The scene takes place at the Sea of Galilee. How many of you, raise your hand, have you ever heard of the Sea of Galilee before? Probably all of us have heard of it somewhere. Uh, sometimes the Sea of Galilee in the New Testament, in the reading back that we just did, it's called the Lake of Gennesaret. Uh, sometimes it's in John chapter 6, they call it uh, the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias uh, right there as well. And so a lot of times it depended on who was writing this. Tiberius would be Roman. Uh, they would have been referring to it uh, as that. Gennesaret, boo, you can help me with that. That's probably, uh, is that a Hebrew word, I guess you could say. So it's one of those things that a lot of times we have different names that we call things to. We called it this, but they called it that. And so sometimes that becomes difficult in the Bible that we've got to remember. We're talking about the same place, but there's a different name perhaps for it. This sea sits down in the valley. From what I can tell, it said it was about 685 feet below sea level, which is a very low level. Surrounded by mountains, about 13 miles long, over 7 miles wide at its widest point, but it's not real wide in some of the other, uh, other places. The actual depth of the sea ranges up to about 150 feet deep. Lucille, is that an appropriate amount of deep water for you? 150 feet? That bad enough. That bad enough, right? <laughs> yeah, Lucille likes to swim in the larger bodies of water right there. I didn't know she do that one or not. But anyway, uh, this area that we're talking about, we had a little map the, uh, the other day, and so I wanted to put that up there as well. That is the sea. This won't do much for you, but as you can see, it's wider here. This is not the greatest map, but like anything you see, the deeper or the farther out into it, it's going to be much deeper. And this is the deepest spot right here. This is the town of Tiberias, which is, of course, why the sea would have been referred to. There's also a town of Gennesaret right here. And so whatever town it was, that's why they would have referred to it the way that they were. We're going to see uh, in this story that they would have been out fishing, uh, search, uh, the, the men have been out fishing, and so certainly certain areas uh, of a lake are going to be able to catch more than others. Some fish are deeper, some fish are a little, uh, a little closer to surface level. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there was a ton of different ones, and so I, I thought this was uh, kind of a pretty picture. You can see a little bit right here. The Bible describes it as being surrounded by mountains. Um, it's all relative. I sometimes talk about this in my Kentucky studies class with my kids. What we call mountains in Kentucky aren't quite the same thing as what they call mountains in like Colorado and Wyoming. Well, what they call mountains in Israel don't really look like mountains to us right here. But if you live in an area that's almost all flat, any sort of elevation seems like uh, a mountain uh, right there. If you go north of Israel up into Turkey, uh, that's where you see a whole lot uh, of mountains. And that's also where a, a lot of earthquakes tend to happen. Earthquakes and mountains a lot of times are sort of go hand in hand. So we're going to talk a little bit about what happened here in this so-called first catch or drought of fish or whatever you want to call it. But this Sea of Galilee has an abundance of fish. 
Lots of different varieties, and commercial fishing was quite important at the time of Christ. When we say commercial fishing, what does that mean? Casual and sell. This is your job. This is not go out and catch a few fish so we got something to eat, but you need to catch and then sell. Now, if you're a commercial fisherman, what is the most important thing that has to happen? You got to catch them. Because if you don't catch them, what do you not get? You don't get paid in return. And so your job is reliant upon this. Now, I don't want to get too technical. And I'm not, if I could ask, please don't ask any questions for like the next 30 minutes right here. I literally know everything I know is on the screen. And anything else, I would just be making up. But I do have some of this. And I've got some pictures for it. I talked about that on Sunday as well. <clears throat> so there was a lot of different methods of fishing that were used. That's not any different than today. There's different ways of fishing as well. And I'd say if you've ever went fishing with anybody, you've done it wrong and they did it right. And they're trying to tell you the best way to do it. But a cast net was a circular net of fine mesh with the open edge of the net weighted with bits of lead. Now think about that for a second. Why would you want to weight your net with a little bit of lead? Say it again. So it would land, yeah. Exactly. Because you're not going to catch many fish that are swimming on top of the water, right? So it's got to drop down into it just a little bit. So the fisherman holding the net in the center cast it from the shore into shallow water so that it would fall flat on the surface and enclose a school of fish. He would then drag the net toward him. Now, that's a method that probably would work well for fish that would be located where? Close to shore. That you don't even have to, you're not even hardly getting wet in that situation. But you don't always that. Another method was what was called a drag net. And this was a net several hundred yards long with lead weights on the bottom edge and floats or corks on the top edge. And sometimes the fisherman fastened one end of the net to the shore and then pulled the other end with the boat. In a sense, you can imagine it's sort of anchored and the boat is going in like a little semicircle and you're just catching everything along the way. If you've ever watched one of those shows, um, is it Deadliest Catch, I think? Um, deadliest Catch. They use those kind of big nets like that. A lot of people don't think that's a really good thing because you're sort of catching everything uh, in the process. But this is a similar type thing. Obviously, the technology would have been much more primitive uh, back then. Other times, the net was drawn between two boats to catch the fish, catch the fish, which were then gathered into a boat. So sometimes you went out, you had a boat, they had a boat. Imagine, you know, if you and me were holding hands and walking across and we're scooping up everything in between, that's another method that would have been used. And when they returned to shore, they sorted the fish by size, variety, kept the good, throwing back the bad. And that should look pretty familiar for anybody as well. Now, a couple of pictures here. This uh, I, I cannot speak to the accuracy of this, but I thought this was pretty cool because the guy is clearly using some methods that would have been somewhat common. It, to me, this looks really difficult. I don't believe for a second that back then the job of a commercial fisherman would have been easy work. It seems like it would have been challenging work. Also would have been a lot of pressure on you as well because you're reliant upon this to make money as well. But you can kind of get a sense of a thrown net here. This is something he's caught some things here. Those are the weighted uh, bits of lead right here. And then this, of course, you drag the fish in as well. So just an idea of what this would have been like. And then those nets would have been so heavy. Oh, sure. Now they would be 75 Sure. Yeah. 
and, and we're actually going to talk about that right here. The nets were made by the fishermen. Uh, and many hours would have been spent making a new net or repairing an old one, washing, spreading, drying them. They would get dirty, they would get nasty uh, in the sea, and so they would have to clean them. And in this story, Peter and his companions had been fishing all night with no success. And when Jesus comes near, what we're going to see, they were out of their boats mending their nets. And so this was probably an almost daily job when you were done with the fishing part, then it was time for the repair part there as well. So I wanted to introduce a few things to it right there. I found us another good picture. This is an old one. This is a tapestry. You know what a tapestry is? Anybody know what a tapestry is? You kind of like a painting on a curtain. If you, if you, have you ever been to the Biltmore House? They have a lot of tapestries in the Biltmore House. Uh, right there, they're sort of woven in. I don't know. I'm fascinated by the ability of people to be able to do this. But this was uh, this is just a picture uh, of it as well. So let's go to Luke chapter five, and we're going to read this story of uh, of what takes place. My Bible entitles this four fishermen called as disciples. This is Luke five verses one through five to start with. Connie, do you care to read this one? Genesaret. And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fisherman had gone from them and was washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and talked to multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down Okay. And so we're going to go a little bit further in just a second, but I want to point out something here. It says the boat which was Simon. So we do a little jumping back and forth. When you hear the name Simon, who do you also hear the name of? So these names referred to as both in the Bible. This man? Peter. Very good. We read that in the scripture you just said, you know. Jesus referred to him as Cephas, right? Cephas means rock, I believe, or stone, something along those lines. Uh, and so he was sort of called by both names. Sometimes you read this and you think, that's weird, calling by his real name. But how many of you have multiple names that people are calling him by? You know? And if you think back to your siblings, or if you think back to your parents, they probably called you some names as well. When you weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing, they called you some other names, I'm guessing, uh, along the way uh, there as well. All right? But this is, when we see Simon here, because I think here in a second we'll see the name Peter, it's the same person in this situation. All right? Luke 5, verses 6 through, uh, verses six through 11. Jimmy, do you care to read this one? And when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners, questions here for us to think about in this story. And I, I'm guessing nobody here is probably hearing this story for the first time. And I'm guessing you'll know the answers 
to these pretty well uh, as well. So what were the fishermen doing while the people were crowded around Jesus? They're mending their nets. So I want you to think about this. You've been out fishing all night. You've been extremely unsuccessful, at least based on what we've seen. You're mending the nets, which seems like one of the worst parts of the job. And all of a sudden, all these people start crowding around. I want you to be real with me for a second. What's going through your head at that moment? Get away. Get away. Right? Get away. Most of us are happy to see people when things are going well, right? But when something breaks at work, all of a sudden somebody shows up and says, hey, what are you up to? Like, what, what do you want to do right then? Get away right there. But Jesus is in the vicinity here as well. And what does that tell you that Jesus was already doing here? He was already attracting a crowd of people. Again, when we looked at the map, this is Jesus' hometown area, as it were. This is not far from Canaan. It's just right up the road, as we might say, in this. But these fishermen are trying to do their work at the same time. Now, Jesus sees two boats on the shore and entered into one belonging to who? Simon. So why does Jesus do this? Why do you think Jesus decided to get into a boat. I think keep distance between he and all the people around. Okay. Keep a little distance. What else? Okay. This a recruiting tool wasn't work. Yeah. Uh, it's almost an amphitheater. When he put that boat out of the water, like this and there's distance, but it, the voice is absolutely amplified up that hillside. We talk about being surrounded by mountains. Well that's a relative term, but it is a grade up, right? It's going up. And so if you're out into some distance and you got people sitting around, then your voice is going to carry, it's going to echo its way up through there and more people would be able to hear. If you're standing on flat ground, if you've ever done like a tour at a tourist site or something, if you're the eighth in line back there, you may not be able to hear anything. But if you're elevated just a little bit, like in an auditorium in a, in a, or at a gymnasium or an amphitheater, you're going to be able to hear a whole lot better. What do you do while he's in the boat? Okay. He spoke to the people. He taught the multitudes of people. So this was an opportunity for him to be able to teach the people. So using this opportunity right there. So what did Jesus tell Simon to do in Luke chapter 5 and verse 4? Go out and catch some fish, right? So to go out and catch some fish. Now think about this for a second. You've already been unsuccessful for the evening. You've already got people crowding into your workspace. And now you've got somebody who's taking your boat out into the water. And then he tells you to do what? Go out there. Go out there. What do you think is probably going through your head at this point? Yeah, you know, I tell you what, we've been unsuccessful. We'll save that for just a minute. But if you think about what's probably going through his head, probably thinking, well, maybe he will respond perhaps a little different. Remember, you'll say something? Yeah, and historians tell us that with the Roman occupation or everything else, that the Sea of Galilee was completely overfished. Right. And that people at this time were struggling to catch anything. Uh-huh. And so. And you know, when you say that, there could have been some buildup like, man, this job just is not what it used to be. Uh, obviously, that's sort of speculation on our part, but nonetheless, it's true. How does Simon reply during the fifth verse? 
He said, we've been out all night fishing and we've not had any luck. But is that a period in the sentence right there? But he says what on the back half of verse 5? Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down my net. Now, it seems to me in what we've read here, what we're reading in the other Gospels, that these people are, that, that Peter and them are familiar with Jesus. So there's some sort of connection here that would allow him to have some trust. Think about it at your place of work. If you're doing something at your place of work and it's not working, there are probably people that you would listen to about how to correct things or how to fix things. There are probably people that you would not listen to on how to correct things or fix it. How do we make that decision? Who I'm going to listen to and who I'm not? Experience. experience. Their experience or your experience with them? Okay. Both? Okay. How else do we make that decision? Yeah, it, it, and it has to be the experience of a person because Jesus is a carpenter. Uh-huh. Peter knows he's a carpenter. So why do you want to fear a fish when you're not going to be too willing to take a carpenter's advice about fishing? Unless there's something really special. Absolutely. The, the job, I mean, if, if he was a fisherman on another lake, well, that makes a little more sense. But like you said, a carpenter, like, eh, I don't know. So. Uh, my brother David, I've told Pat this before, but if World Movement had something that absolutely had to be fixed and nobody could fix, they called Pat. Yeah. That's, that's Dave, because Dave could fix a lot of stuff. But he said, I got to call Pat. And then he called Pat. And Pat, that's a compliment to you. But that's the way it was. Dave said, Pat can't fix this. He ain't fixed it. And that's a, that's a tremendous problem. And he didn't get that overnight through a career. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly, but there are people like that at your job or that are, that are like that. On the flip side, has there been anybody showed up and you thought, oh, not this <laughs> We can all relate to that as a little bit. It would be easier to just throw it in the trash and try to, try to fix it right here. We can all relate to that as well. But Simon says, nevertheless, on your word, I'll go out and try again. Now, what miracle then occurs in verse 6? So why would we call this a miracle? Because they've been out all night. They have not caught anything. Now they just caught a great multitude of fish. Okay. But I'm sure that sometimes they were successful when they fished. Well, like I said, this area was really bad overfishing at the time, so this was in something. That you couldn't just deny. Okay. So it makes sense that after a night of sort of poor fishing, it would make sense that you might go out and catch a handful, right? Two or three, you know, they sawed it in, the weather changed, the current changed, whatever. But how does it describe, how does the Bible describe how many they caught? They just pulled the net into the boat. It was sinking the boat. I, it would seem like, and I think it has to be, Mom. Why do you think it would have to be? Well, would not be considered here. If they caught 10 or 12 or 15 or whatever the normal catch would have been, it's like, well, we should have just waited until this morning and went out with this. You know, it was a lot better than going overnight or whatever it was. What did they do when this occurred in verse 7? So they had to call up their friends to have them come and help. Why? Her, her headset, I think, man. So why, and why in verse 7? So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They wanted to keep the fish because that's their livelihood. Right. And uh, their boat was too full. Boat was, so 
the, the boat, uh, maybe you caught this on the picture. There was a boat sort of in the background. I'm assuming that it would be roughly uh, the kind of boat that they would have used. But it certainly wasn't anything that was very big. And if that drags down your boat, now what's your problem? We lost the boat. We lost the fish. And if we're not careful, what else we lost? We've lost, we lost the net. What else have we lost? We may not even be around as well. And so this is a big problem. But now... It seems like when they call them, we talked about that just a second ago, it was fairly common. A method of fishing would be for multiple boats to go out and work together. And so I'm sure this was something that they relied upon each other for a little bit of help. We need some help. Our net has broken, whatever the case might have been in some other fishing situation. But they called on others to help them because they were, had caught too much. So what does Peter do? What did he say to Jesus in verse 8 right here? He said that he, in a sense, if we can put our terms into it, like he didn't deserve to be here uh, with him. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, why, why would he say that? I think he was understanding the power of Jesus. Okay. Sure. He was a rabbi or known as Well, when your life depends on it, you know, me out catching you maybe feeds me and stars you in that case. So. I've always thought that's why Jesus sent Peter to get the milk and the donkey, because not too many people will question Peter. Right. Because, you know, just the kind of person he is. And, and I think that does, you know, I, I think that does make sense. Have you ever thought what these people, especially Peter, Andrew, James, and John, have you ever thought what the week before they met Jesus was like? Like the week before, the, the week, whatever day it was that they met or at least heard of Jesus, have you ever thought about what was the week before that like for them? What they do? What were their lives like? What were they anticipating? What were their expectations for their future? I would think it'd be like most people at that time, just day in and day out, pretty much the same. I don't know that that's a thing about that time. I think that's still in many ways, even today. How many of you have... I saw this. You've got several different kinds. You've got John, who was very well off. You got Matthew, the tax collector. So you got people from all these different walks of life. And I'm guessing as a tax collector, he he has a pretty wild time. I I would imagine so. I think too there would have been a stir in this whole area because maybe we found them aside. I don't know if Peter, James, and John heard that, Uh but you know their talk goes pretty quick. Right. You turn the water into wine. You know that that that. He's different. Yeah. Because the crowd is following right up after the water's in. Right. And so they and they could hear him, they heard him speak too, and they thought, well, this is this is not like anybody that's ever Sure. That we've never heard anybody speak. So I asked that question because sometimes we find ourselves saying, Well, I had no idea that I would end up doing this. 
You sometimes should. But most of the things that we end up doing are quite often things that we sort of back into or accidentally. Or I knew a guy who knew a guy who got me the job kind of a thing. And so what we have to be careful with, and this is, I fuss about this at school a lot of times, that we tell our kids at school, like, let's pick a career, what we need to do. Well, we need to be interested in a lot of different things. We don't really know what's going to happen going forward. As a Christian, we need to be aware that we are working to serve Christ. But we can't say, well, I've never done any of that, so I never will. I've never stood in front of a the group and taught a class. I'll never do that. We don't really know what we're going to do. But it's real easy to say, no, I will never do that. But sometimes things change. Sometimes we're presented with opportunities that afford us a chance to do something that maybe we wouldn't have done before. I say a week before they met him because Peter, Andrew, James, and John were probably the time before they met Jesus were just curious what's life will be like. You know, what are we going to do? What can we do? How can we make this job more fun? Or how can we be more successful? Or whatever it might would be. Who were his partners in this? Brother Andrew and John. Okay. So we probably friends, but absolutely. So we mention here. It doesn't mention Andrew in what we just read here in the book of Luke. But what I referred to you in Matthew chapter four, and then in Mark chapter one, Andrew's mentioned in context as being right there as well. So you got to assume that they probably would have been as well. So now, when I said, what do you think they were doing the week before? Well, whatever they were doing the week before is going to be a whole lot different than what they're going to be doing in the week after. The verse 10 right here. What new assignment did Jesus give to Peter? He said, you will now catch men. You will be a fisher of men if we want to say that. Now, you're Peter. Does this seem easier or harder than your previous job? Harder? Connie, go ahead. No, I said, just imagine today someone telling us, just walk off and leave your job and come with me. That's a big thing. Does somebody change their life totally? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what amazes me so And they all have families. Sure. That's always been my biggest thing. Yep. Right. fishermen on the lake thought <laughs> maybe that's four less competitors that they've got to work with right there uh, as well but Jesus said to Simon in verse 10 he said from now on you'll be fishers of men but what did he say before that what did Jesus say to him in the first part of that sentence before he said you'll be fishers of men he said do not be afraid and sometimes just the simplest little sentence can make us 
get us sort of over the hump. Because for a lot of us, we have a reluctance to take that next step into whatever that career or whatever it might be that we were talking about a minute ago. And we talked about it last week. Sometimes you need a little shove or whatever. Well, sometimes you just need a peaceful word. And I would imagine that Peter, if, if I can put myself in his place, is thinking, wow, this guy's way better than me, so I probably should follow him. But at the same token, I've got family, I've got connections at home. He says, now I'm going to catch men, which seems a whole lot harder. But he said, don't do not be afraid. And sometimes just the simplest word, the calming word like that, is enough for us to be able to go next step. I think, too. Oh, go ahead. Well, I think, too, for these people, <laughs> for these people here, this is what they were looking for. Right. I, I believe it would have been a mesmerizing uh, voice. And the way that when he said, do not be afraid, it had to be such a different thing that they had ever heard spoken in a way that would have just made them say, I got to go with this guy. A little later on, Jesus will tell the story of the rich young ruler. And he told the rich young ruler, he said that he would need to do what? Sell everything. What do these people, what did Peter, Andrew, James, and John do in Luke chapter 5, verse 11? Read that verse right there. And when they brought their ships to land, they forsook all the So they were, on, they were on the boat, clearly, when this happened. They came into land, got out of the boat, and left it all right there. Now, most of us would have said, let's sell this boat. Let's sell this net. Let's put a little extra money in our pocket because I'm getting ready. I'm leaving my job, but it'd be nice to leave with a hundred bucks in my pocket. Give me. But that's not what they did. Why do you think they didn't do it? Recognize something more. That was the thing that that rich young ruler in that story. He said, "What?" He, they told me, Jesus said, you know, you got to sell all this stuff. He wasn't even willing to consider selling his stuff because he wanted that stuff. They left it all there on the shore. I would say there was a fisherman on the, on the Sea of Galilee that probably got a pretty good start on their life the day after. Because they staggered into some boats and some nets and said, I'll start doing this right here. They went ahead and left. So what do we need to go ahead? Right. He's a sergeant that could better. It's a movie. I know sure. It's a story. It's a movie. But there's people that did that. Right. This, this is more important. The right. Cause is important. Blah, blah, blah. But I want to get killed. I need to go home. And uh, that's what these guys here did. They realize this is way more important. So let's take a couple of things home with us here right now. First of all, first thing I want to say don't let failure keep us from the next attempt. How many of us have failed once and never done it again? Well, why do we sometimes not want to try again? Fear of failing. We've already failed once. So that's a knock on me, right? That's a negative on me. Well, they fished all night and caught what? 
nothing. And as like Ben was talking about, sort of historically speaking, this probably wasn't the first night that they maybe had been struggling as well. By any measure, their evening had been a failure, right? They'd caught nothing, and they're still having to do what when they were back on land? They were still having to fix it. So the nets that didn't catch a single thing still had to be repaired after they came back. But he used that failure, Jesus uses that failure in a sense to sort of teach them a lesson, right? That even though they had failed at what they were doing, he said, let's go back out there and try one more time. Let's go give it one more shot. We shouldn't be discouraged by failure, but instead do what with it? Learn from it. Absolutely. It's hard. And I will readily admit it's difficult for me as well. Yeah. A lot of times we get to that, put ourselves in a little box and we don't want to go past. Right. I can't do that. It's too big for me. Right. Let's go into the deeper water. Let's take on some bigger challenges. Absolutely. Makes sense. Number two, trusting God through obedience. Right? Did they obey God's teaching in this situation? Now, did it bring a blessing to them? It absolutely did. Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, we read, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in what? It's made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, Paul said, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So right there, they trusted God through that obedience. The third thing. Let God determine the course. I want you to think about Peter for just a second. I bet Peter knew, knew that it was useless to go out there and throw that net in there one more time, didn't he? I'm going to use the word knew right here, right? You know that he, somewhere deep down, he thought, because we can read it right there. You can read it in his voice when he says, we haven't caught anything all night. But nevertheless... Like Dan said, Jesus was a carpenter. Peter's a fisherman. Odds are Peter's going to know a lot more about that. But what does Peter do? Nevertheless, he went out there. Our job is to obey God, right? And to do our best. What is our best? It's always more than we think we can do. But will our best always succeed? It may not. Will there still be failure when, in, when we do our best? Not everything we do is going to be perfect. Not everything we do is going to be that. But when God commands us to do something, tells us to do something, the consequences are God's. Absolutely. So we don't have to worry about the consequences. You know, let God worry about that. God says, let's do something, do it, but maybe the consequences to Him. So I want to take then what Ben said, because that's the last thing I wanted to mention, is I want to flip it around. If the consequences are gone, we have to be really careful to recognize that the successes are whose as well. Because if we're not careful, it becomes success, success, success. Look what God did. Look what God and I did together. Look what I did. If we're not careful, then our pride sort of goes up there and we're like, wow, we've, we, I, 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 I am doing so much. But that's not what it is. We let God determine the course. Right? We do what God asks of us, and that's what we can take from this. That's the only thing that we would be able to take from this. Because that, say it again. We never boast. We don't boast. Because that pride will do what to us? It'll bring us right 
back down. And Peter would see that some in his preaching and teaching as well. Thoughts before we go home? Other thoughts before we go? Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Next week, we are going to, we're going to stay on the boat next week, Lucille. We're going to steal the storm.